seated, please. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Septuagesima Sunday <clears throat> marks a, a significant shift in the church calendar in the beginning seasons of the year from Advent to, to Christmas and Epiphany. We're focusing on the incarnation, either looking forward to the birth of Christ or looking back upon an epiphany and looking at the various ways that Christ is revealed as the Son of God. Beginning with Septuagesim, we begin to look forward to Easter, to Holy Week and Easter, the cross and resurrection of our Lord. We begin to think about our preparations uh, for, for that, those uh, central events of Christian faith. Septuagesima means 70th day, and its reference point is Easter. Today is actually 64 days before Easter. Probably at some point in time there was a, an observance of the 70th day that probably floated, and it got moved to the next Sunday. Next Sunday is called Sexagesima, which means 60th day, which is actually 57 days before Easter. And then we have Quinquagesima, which is finally accurate, means 50th day. So our countdown begins to Easter. The focus of the season, we have this, it's pre-Lent is a sort of transitional time. We begin to think about Lent. It's not Lent. Some of the penitential character comes upon us. The Gloria in Excelsis goes from the liturgy. The Alleluia's disappear. We won't say or sing Alleluia in church on Sunday until Easter day. But, um, but we're not there yet, so it's that preliminary season to Lent where there's still the final celebration. So as this dual character of looking forward to Lent but not quite being there yet. The Gospel for Septuagesma focuses on grace. The point of the parable in which everyone gets, uh, in the King James is called a penny, but more accurately, it's the Greek denarius, which was the day's wage for a laborer, where everybody works different amounts of time and gets the same wage. The point is that salvation is not quantifiable. You can't have more or less of it. You can only have it. And whether you come to faith at the 11th hour of your life or the 11th hour of history, if you come to faith, you will receive salvation, just like the person who believed during the whole day. So it's the point about the grace of God. There's really nothing you can do. And the, the real point of the parable is brought in the fact that the dynamics of grace don't fit into a parable about labor. The laborers did have a legitimate complaint if you're talking about workers. But when we understand it's about grace, it, 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 we understand it doesn't fit, and that's how the point is made. The epistle today makes a seemingly contrasting point. It tells us that we must practice discipline, we must buffet the body if we expect to achieve or, or win the crown of eternal life. And St. Paul suggests to us that it's possible through a lack of discipline to somehow not obtain the prize. So our gospel is about grace, the free gift that comes despite how long we've labored, and the epistle is about discipline, about the need to practice discipline and self-control so as to obtain the prize. 
somebody made the point in the lessons this Sunday that lessons have these contrasting themes. The gospel that tells us it's never too late to be saved, and an epistle that tells us it's never too late to be lost, <laughs> to lose what it is. But these, these seem to contrast with each other, but they in fact form a kind of paradox. That is, two aspects of truth that seem to contrast, but form a part of a unified and complete whole. Reality and Christian faith are full of paradox. And this, it takes eyes of faith to understand how these seemingly contradictory things work together. And this is, pertains to the fullness of what we call the Catholic faith. Error results, even heresy, when we try to resolve the various paradoxes of our faith too much in one direction versus the other. <clears throat> Truth that, that can trick somebody just exists side by side and the fullness of truth requires we meditate on it and not try to tie it down or button it up. For example, we believe that God is omnipotent and omniscient and in control. We believe that human beings have free will and there's evil in the world. How does that work together? The fullness of faith says that it does and truth will always be a meditation on how that is so. Error will try to work towards determinism and, and, and a stark kind of Calvinism or uh, the other direction where everybody is free and there's no one in control of the shop. Truth puts both together. <clears throat> in, with regard to our parable, the error of, if we take the, the, the truths of grace too far, we believe that you know, all we have to do to be saved is believe in Jesus at some moment in time and our salvation is guaranteed forever, and it doesn't matter whatever we subsequently do. If we take the error or the, the, the complementary truth about discipline too far, we fall into the error of thinking that it is our discipline, our good works, our labor that is working our way into heaven. We come to believe that because we've worked a little bit harder, we do, in fact, deserve a little higher wage than that person who didn't quite work as hard, or maybe came to the party a little bit later on. We can <clears throat> resolve the, 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 the sort of uh, contrast in these lessons by understanding the limitations of our analogies. In the gospel, the denarius represents salvation, and it, as such, can make one point about salvation. It's not quantifiable everybody receives the same thing. In that way, salvation is like a denarius. But of course, there are a thousand ways that salvation is utterly unlike a coin. <clears throat> salvation comes to us through the gift of the Holy Spirit. And when the Spirit is planted in us, the Spirit is a life-giving, transforming, speaking force that changes us. Whereas a coin is just a lifeless object that we put in our our pocket. <clears throat> when we see salvation as this force, we realize it may be received simply at a moment in time by faith, but it will only grow to a, a thousand subsequent acts of faith. It may begin with a simple repentance, but it will grow through a, a thousand 
specific acts of repentance that, that further that, that life in us. And this life in us, therefore, requires uh, that we practice things. That we, practice, we must practice fasting and self-control so that this life will, will grow and we will get ourselves out of the way. We must feed that life with the sacrament, with daily prayer. We must practice love. We must have the life within us respond to the image of God in others and, and act appropriately and sacrificially. We, we might, in a certain sense, complain that God in, in, in this sort of drama of salvation is involved in kind of bait and switch in the sense that when we come to faith, we, we come with the idea that we, we put our faith in Christ and, and what we expect is that our sins will be forgiven and that we'll feel better about ourselves. We want all these good feelings. We discover that, in fact, what we did is we accepted or received into our lives a conquering spirit that will, be not, that will not be content until it has taken over every fiber of our being. Because God and evil cannot coexist, and these things are in us. And as the conquest of the spirit in us makes progress, evil will necessarily diminish. We might think of this as, we might sort of be disposed to think it's bait and squish, but the fact is that we weren't as good as we thought we were. And as the spirit works in us, more and more that is in us is exposed. We, we are more attached to our idols than we think we are. We are locked into our patterns of, of selfish behavior more than we thought we were. And so it's not that God glories in making the spiritual life difficult. It's just that there's a lot more work in us than we envision. So it began with a simple hope, but as we begin to live out the implications of our life, we realize it's a little more complex than that. The good news is that God is, is content to have salvation grow in us through a process. We don't have to become holy in a day. <clears throat> what God wants us to do is respond to the specific things he is calling us to do now. We don't have to know. How is God going to fully and finally make us holy? We have to listen to the word of God and the spirit of God today and say, what am I being called to do? And each act of faith and obedience in the Christian life moves us forward and puts us in a new place where subsequent acts are possible. And that's how growth occurs. And we can't skip a step. We can't go from beginning math to calculus. We have to grow in our knowledge appropriate to our state at each point along the way. <clears throat> With regard to the season of, of pre-Lent and, and the Sundays that, and the weeks that precede Lent, the questions for us to ask ourselves, we prepare for Lent, are fairly simple. What, what sins are we being called to confess? How is the Spirit speaking to us and calling us to change? What new disciplines of behavior do we need to practice to, to, to change our patterns of behavior, to replace uh, certain bad habits with certain good habits? 
to subdue, as it were, our human nature, the spirit in our lives. What, what new acts of love, what new exercise of our gifts are we being called to practice? But above all, all of our Lenten disciplines must be rooted in the reality of grace. So we all, must also ask ourselves, do we understand that our sins are forgiven? We understand there's nothing we can do to make God love us more than he already does. All of our disciplines of the Christian life must be rooted in this reality of grace and giftedness. For if we do heroic spiritual things, and these heroic spiritual things are not rooted in the motive of the love that comes from God, everything we do is worthless. So there is, as we prepare for Lent, this, this tension that, that we must hold together and not lose sight of. The salvation is a free gift. That, that God has sent his son to die for us. That our sins are forgiven. That we are now God's people. And the question of discipline is, what are we called to do to cooperate with that love in us in new ways? To, to get ourselves out of the way a little bit so God's work can move forward in us more effectively. We, we guard in Lent. Uh, human nature wants to take discipline, wants to take Lent and turn it into a legalism, an earning. Human nature loves to take religion and turn it into meritorious acts. I'll do all these things and I'll earn this favor from God. We can't do that. We already have God's favor. We are God's chosen people. What we can do is practice discipline. Look at things going on in our lives and, and change our behaviors to open up new doors for the Spirit to come in and do His work. We can listen to God's voice in new ways. We can finally deal with that thing we always keep in the closet. Bring that, that, that new thing to light, open that new door, and let God do his, his work in us in some new way. So this is what we're thinking about for the next two and a half weeks. Uh, the reality of God's grace and also the need for discipline. How will we practice Lent in such a way to allow God's grace to take greater control of our lives? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen.